Just, I'll try to remember. I'll try to remember. I have several. Okay. How's our reading going? I wish it wasn't any longer. As Dr. Johnson said, well, you got your wish. It's not any longer. We're not doing Chronos Regained, right? Right. Is that good? But it wouldn't be Paradise Lost. It would all be happy. Paradise Regained, hooray. Um, many people like Paradise Lost the first time they read it. I won't say most people do, but many people do. Um, probably the number of people who have liked Paradise Regained the first time they read it is um, small. <laughs> um, I've actually, over many years, come to really, really like Paradise Regained. Um, but most people don't, so no, we aren't. If you take Spencer and Milton next year, um, or just, you know, try to make, if you're graduating but you want to have your life be meaningful um, and not just, you know, kind of empty, miserable shell of pointlessness, you should read Paradise Regained. Um, you should read Milton all the time. Um, it's important. I mean, if anything is. Okay, but Paradise Lost. So um, let's go back to um, books one and two, and um, get to book, we'll get to book three as well today. Um, one of the things that I asked you to think about from the start, and um, that we'll start talking about now, is what we think of Satan as a character, um, what we think of his um, attitude towards his situation towards God, towards um, the universe in which he finds himself, towards his place in the universe, and towards his followers. Um, the great debate about Paradise Lost, I think it's a slightly misplaced debate, but it's certainly um, the right starting point for thinking about Paradise Lost. The great debate about Paradise Lost for the last 200 years um, Less so in Milton's own time, um, but within about a century after Milton, when people started um, recognizing him as the greatest of English poets, um, Shakespeare always aside. Um, the great debate is whether Milton is of the devil's party, to quote William Blake or not. Um, that is, is Milton giving what's officially a justification of the ways of God to men, um, which is the line that the invocation to book one ends with. That is that um, what he wants to do is assert eternal providence and justify the ways of God to men. Um, is that just a cover story in which what he really does is tells us a story um, about God's tyranny in which Satan is the hero, um, at least the hero as long as he can possibly be a hero while Milton would still have a plausible cover story. That is, well, he looks heroic, but finally in the end he's bad and that's the truth. Um, or is the truth that he's actually good, um, but that in order to make the poem work as it has to, meet the demands of um, society, of the government, of the um, powerful church, um, 
Milton kind of um, retreats from that original insight into Satan. That's one possibility. That's known as the satanic reading of Paradise Lost. And there's also what's called the angelic reading of Paradise Lost. Um, C.S. Lewis is its most um, distinguished, I guess would be the word, um, spokesperson in the 20th century, which is, well, of course you're going to find Satan attractive. That's because you're evil. Um, and what will happen after a while is you'll realize that uh, you were wrong to find Satan attractive, and then maybe you'll think. And that's the way Paradise Lost will be good for you. Um, so the angelic reading is it's really, really easy to find Satan powerful and charismatic and right. Um, but when you find yourself doing that, you should now start thinking about yourself, should start thinking about your own morality if you find yourself doing that. And the satanic reading is, to quote um, Lewis's great um, opponent on this issue, the critic William Empson, um, says that if you read Paradise Lost that way, the way Lewis reads it, and if you read it in the angelic way of reading it, um, he ends his book on Paradise Lost called Milton's God with the sentence, then what you are getting out of it is evil. Um, so they both feel pretty strongly that Paradise Lost makes a real moral demand on the reader, a real moral, a, a really demands a moral choice, and that moral choice is a significant one. Um, Lewis thinks that um, it will teach you, if you're savable, what Christianity should be. And Lewis, by the way, believed everyone would be saved, I think. I think that's one of his um, saving qualities, is he didn't actually think human beings would go to hell. I'm not positive about that, but I believe that's true about him. Um, and Empson um, thought that if you took that reading of Paradise Lost, um, it would lead to um, support for tyranny. Um, Empson thinks Milton's God is um, strikingly close to Stalin um, and um, that the way the loyal angels um, treat Milton's God is strikingly close to what Stalin demanded of his subordinates. So, um, since that's not a question where you'd be on the line in any way, what do you all think? Whose side are you on? Do you agree with Blake's view that Milton is of the devil's party? Um, or do you think that that's um, precisely um, the trick is not to fall into that trap? Yeah? And it's possible that I missed it. It's very possible that I missed it. But in the, in the, at least in the first three books, do they really go into what the original argument was that led to the fall? Like no, the we're going to hear that from Raphael. Raphael will tell Adam. Yeah. Because like I feel like without knowing that, you can't really take a side. So does anyone did anyone get that far? What? It, so yeah, Laurelly. I feel like the way he's portrayed in Godness, especially when he's talking to his son, is it's not a good portrayal of him. It's cruel and it's harsh. Uh huh. And it's it's almost uncaring. Yeah. Like his son's like, oh, um, you know, I know that the people have sinned, but I'll sacrifice myself for them. He's like, good. Yeah. You know, that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. He doesn't like show any compassion at all for anybody. 
Yeah. As opposed to Satan, who does show compassion for everybody, all the fallen angels and the regular angels. Mm-hmm. Which, like, might be a bad thing, but I mean, he was an angel once, and so I don't think it's possible for him to be completely bad. Mm-hmm. And I like what you said before about how Aaron is just, like, wandering, technically. Like, that's the translation mm-hmm. of it. Like, he, he wandered from the path that he was, like, meant to be on. By mm-hmm. God, but that doesn't make him bad. It just makes him like different, I guess. Okay, um, the, um, Leah was actually asking about a plot question, oh. um, which no, which could make a difference. That is, what is it that causes Satan to rebel? Um, in Dante and in Catholic doctrine, he just thinks one day I shall not serve. Um, that's the the famous sentence, not as famous. Well, it's probably more famous in Christian theology and Catholic theology than cogito ergo sum, is Satan saying, "Non serviam," I shall not serve. I won't. I won't serve anymore. And that's the moment of his fall. Um, he's immediately thrown out of heaven as soon as he thinks that thought. Um, and um, not in Paradise Lost. In Paradise Lost, they actually have a battle in heaven, um, in dubious battle upon the plains of heaven as um, they say in book one. Um, it lasts for three days. You'll read all this if you haven't gotten to it yet. It lasts for three days before the angelic forces who have been fought to a draw by the rebel angels, even though they outnumber them two to one, finally get help from God himself who gives to his son. This is a little bit obscure the first time you read it, but. Um, but it's important, gives to his son the chariot of paternal deity, which sounds a little like Edward Gorey, um, but is in fact um, based on the Merkaba. Do people know what that is? Does anyone? So the Merkaba is the chariot that Ezekiel sees in his vision at the beginning of the book of Ezekiel. Um, and it's a chariot um, which is essentially the chariot that draws the presence of God and it becomes very important for Gnosticism and for um, the Kabbalah. Um, but the son, uh, whose name is not Jesus in Paradise Lost by the way, um, he will be named Jesus when he's born as a human. Um, and his birth as a human and his life as a human is described in Paradise Regained. But in Paradise Lost, he's simply known as the sun. Um, the sun um, riding in the, period of, uh, in the chariot of paternal deity um, defeats the rebel angels essentially single-handedly and um, has all the power of his father at his command. And the point is that two-thirds of the angels in heaven couldn't defeat um, Satan and his minions, but the sun alone with the support of his father's chariot could do it. Um, and that shows the greatness of the sun. So that's the battle that will occur in heaven. What starts that battle up, I mean, I think it's fine to have the plot summary before you read it, but just recollecting that there will be a test on more than the plot summary. Um, what um, starts that is that one day in heaven, as Raphael will tell Adam, um, God makes an announcement and he says, this day I have begot whom I declare my only son, unto him all knees shall bend and shall declare him Lord. So one day in heaven God says, um, I have my son, he's my only son, I declare him my only son. Now all the angels thought that they were sons of God. Um, but now God says, um, 
this day I have begot whom I declare my only son. Unto him all knees shall bow and shall declare him Lord. Um, so all um, the other angels in heaven now have to bow to this interloper, as Satan calls him. And so what do the angels do as soon as God makes that announcement? They all sing hallelujah, how wonderful, we're so glad you did this. Um, but Satan, after they celebrate this fantastic news, um, you know, the um, you have a baby brother who's cuter than you kind of news um, that they all get, um, Satan and his followers who are encamped in the north um, talk about this. And Satan says, where did this come from? And this is not right. Satan had been the most powerful of the angels in heaven. Um, but now he finds himself displaced. So he tells his followers that um, this is a tyrannical act on God's part and that they have to resist it. Um, and so that's what causes um, the battle. The way it's told in heaven's history is that um, Satan was, um, instead of celebrating the fact that God had given them this wonderful gift, um, the fantastic son of God, um, that Satan felt himself displaced, uh, felt himself dissed, um, and um, felt his narcissism wounded. Um, and in that wounded narcissism, um, he was actuated by resentment and anger. Um, do you remember, Yale, or anyone, an explicit um, reference to Narcissus with respect to Satan? Eve, yeah, she, she kind of um, has a crush, at any rate, on her own reflection. Um, but then she sees Adam and says, well, he's really not as good-looking, but on the other hand, you know, he's, he's got a certain kind of sexual charisma that I like. Um, but where does sin come from? We get the story of the birth, the creation of sin and death. Where do they come from? The characters. Those are the most Spencerian char characters in Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost generally doesn't have allegorical characters, um, but sin and death come straight out of Spencer. I mean, they're just like Spencerian characters. Yeah. The sin comes out of Satan's head. Right. Like whom? Anyone? Athena. Athena, Athena out of. Zeus. Yeah. Okay. And so sin comes out of Satan's head, and then um, what happens? Where does death come from? Yeah, so, so there's an incestuous bond, an incestuous union between Satan and sin, and that produces death. That's all allegorical. That's the urn of reputation, right? That is, um, Satan created sin and fell in love with sin, and they produced de and that produced death. You know, that all makes sense. Um, why did Satan fall in love with sin? Because it looks so much like him. Yeah, thyself in me, thy perfect image viewing. So sin... Um, Satan sees sin and sees a perfect image of himself in sin, which makes, again, makes allegorical sense, but it also becomes a narcissistic moment. He falls in love with his own image. Um, what does God see in the sun? 
Well, the angels see God in the sun. Like, yeah. They can't look at God and God sees his own sun. glory in the sun as well. That is, there are notable, frequent parallels between Satan's relation to sin and also Satan's relation to Beelzebub. There, some, some of them are, are um, distributed in different ways. And God's relation to the sun. Um, and Adam's relation to Eve. Yeah. I kind of saw a lot of parallels between the types of decisions that God was making and the types of decisions that Satan was making. Uh-huh. Because to me, it both seemed, it seemed like they were both making decisions that they didn't want to make, but they felt like they had to. Good. Yeah. Um, like with with sin coming to man and the fact that man was going to be doomed, God didn't want to let that happen, but mm-hmm. he says that like he gave man free will and right. that is a part of man and he can't influence that in any way because that that basically uncreates man as, as he had already been created. And so he kind of has to let it all happen and he really doesn't want to mm-hmm. but he, he feels like he has to and the same thing with Satan when he first sees um, uh, e- even Adam sleeping he says like you know they're so beautiful and like this is not I'm making this decision for all of the angels in hell not mm-hmm. because I want to of my own volition Yeah, and that's how he justifies that yeah we'll look at that passage but he says that he now must do what else though damned he should abhor um, that is, he's really, um, he expresses very great unhappiness about the necessity, as what he conceives of as the necessity for doing what he's about to do. Um, and he says it's, he, he agrees that it's abhorrent. Um, and there might, there's certainly some um, parallel or quasi-parallel moments in what God says about Adam and Eve. Yeah. What, why doesn't Satan recognize sin at first? Um, well, why? Paper topic. <laughs> I mean, like, is it just, like, if they were human beings, I would say that the trauma of falling from heaven has given him PS, PTSD, and so he yeah. literally blacked it out. But, mm-hmm. like, he's Satan, I don't know if that would be <laughs> <laughs> Um, Yeah. Um, in the when he when Satan first sees Gabriel and all of them, I think Gabriel says like you won't you won't even recognize yourself because what you have done has so distorted your features. Yeah. Like, you think you look like an angel, but you look absolutely nothing like what you used to. Yeah. Know ye know ye not me? He says, I used to be sitting where thou durst not soar, and then Gabriel says, you have no idea how much you've changed since then. Um, and um, you have no idea how much your beauty has been corrupted. Um, it's not surprising that we don't recognize you. So that's part of an answer. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, okay, so the, the heavenly view is that Satan was self-besotted, um, that he believed himself to be the, um, he's in love with himself in a narcissistic way. Um, what Abdiel will say of Satan is when he walks out, but, but the treatment of Abdiel, who's Abdiel? Anyone remember? Remember I said that's, he's one of the angels to recall? Yeah, Gabe? One of the angels who initially sided with Satan and then decided that it was wrong and went back to God. Well, not one of the, the only. Yeah. And he didn't side with Satan. He was one of Satan's followers in 
the order in the in the military order, which is so bizarrely part of heaven. That's like, who are they waiting to fight against? <laughs> um, but heaven is done as a garrison state, a very pleasant garrison state, um, but a garrison state. And um, given the fact that there doesn't seem to be any evil in the world, um, it is somewhat peculiar. Um, it's, it's easy enough to not be completely thrown by that. Um, there are many uh, ways of talking about it, but it's at least worth talking about. Um, the reason is um, at least what everyone will agree on, is that the reason is that um, Lucifer, um, not necessarily Satan originally, do people know what Lucifer means, the word? The light carrier. Um, so yeah, the bright one, but literally the carrier of light. Um, Lucas, Lucum, light, and um, Pharaoh, I carry. So Lucifer is the bearer of light. Um, Lucifer, when it doesn't refer to Satan, do you know what the other thing it will typically refer to in modern discourse if it's not about Satan? It's a name for the evening star. Um, sometimes called Venus, sometimes called Lucifer. The evening star because it's the carrier of light. Um, because it's Luciferous, light carrying. Um, do people know what a Lucifer match is? Not a phrase you've ever heard? No? You you, sorry? I said you have to be old. No, you don't. They, college students love them. Lucifer oh, yeah. Yeah, they're a little hard to get, but not impossible. So what are they? I don't know. Oh. They're basically strike anywhere matches. They're strike anywhere matches. They're, I don't know if they're, they're certainly legal in Connecticut. Um, no, you can get them. They're, um, sometimes they're really important, useful, and necessary. Um, uh, I don't know if they're legal in Massachusetts. Uh, they're discouraged, and safety matches are encouraged. And I don't think minors can buy Strike Anywhere matches. Um, but do people know what Strike Anywhere matches are? Um, yeah, if you go to, if you see um, the great movie to have and have not, which is Lauren Bacall's breakthrough movie, who knew we'd be talking about Lauren Bacall, um, the thing that made her um, famous is a moment when Humphrey Bogart puts a cigarette in his mouth and she's in a doorway and she just takes a match and strikes it against the doorway and holds it to a cigarette. Um, and... Um, Thus began a wonderful love affair and fantastic um, gossip and obsessiveness. And Lauren Bacall is still a voice talent in um, for, I guess, for Disney, not for Pixar. Um, she's now in her late 80s, I think. Um, she was 17 then, and that's what made her famous. So there, so strike anywhere match is basically. Um, anything with any roughness at all, you can strike the match on and it'll light. You don't need the strip that's on a matchbook. Um, those are called safety matches. Uh, matches. The problem with Lucifer matches is you can, people would also strike them. If you've seen Double Indemnity, people would do them with their thumbnails. So you put a match in your thumb and you just flick the top off and it would burst into flame. Um, and nervous people would tend to do that in their pockets, uh, <laughs> which is kind of stupid. Um, so they decided it wasn't a good idea. Um, but they're, um, they're actually useful for camping because they're also, they're much easier to light when wet than um, safety matches are. 
or when damp, they're much easier to light than safety matches are. Um, so um, Lucifer means light bearing. And um, in the book of Isaiah, there is an obscure prophetic moment when um, Isaiah says, um, thou hast made thy um, encampment in the north. Oh, how art thou fallen, Lucifer, son of the morning. Um, and what that seems to mean in Isaiah is that if you look at the morning star, um, what you see is this really beautiful star before dawn, but then the dawn comes and the star disappears. Um, you see it in the northeastern sky before dawn. Um, but then the dawn comes and the star disappears, and that is an image of human self-deception about our own importance in the great scheme of things. So there's this kind of poetic address. But because the line is, how art thou fallen, Lucifer was then understood to refer to Satan, the fallen angel. Um, and the fall of Satan, um, Satan the fallen angel, then um, it was thought that's who Lucifer was as well. Um, and so the two were um, um, uh, conflated. And so what Milton does is he tells that story with Lucifer slash Satan going to the north to meet with his followers to decide to rebel against God, which is then followed by the three-day rebellion and the um, endless fall into hell and onto the burning lake, at which point we start. Um, so all of that backstory you will get later. Um, so the angelic view, as I say, is that Satan is power-hungry, um, unable to um, see himself as second fiddle to anyone, um, and um, particularly angry at being displaced by the Son of God. Um, the infernal view, the satanic view, is that they, the rebel angels, put freedom above everything that for them, freedom is the greatest of virtues, or commitment to freedom is the most important of commitments, that what it means to be a fully rational being is to be free. And pleasantness, the kind of easy, club-med life that you live in heaven, is far less important than freedom, at least if you are the type of person who isn't in, what, in some way a slave. So they contrast a state of splendid vassalage, which is how um, they put life in heaven, to the freedom to be found in hell. So if you look at one of Satan's great speeches in book one, um, this is book one, line two, 42.
Satan's second speech, he's already addressed Beelzebub. Um, his first, and, and has tried to cheer, cheer him up. Now they get back to the solid fire. Um, let's go a little bit before that to see them getting back at line 228. He lights till on dry land he lights. If it were land that ever burned with solid as the lake with liquid fire, and such appeared in hue as when the force of subterranean wind transports a hill torn from Polaris or the shattered side of thundering Etna, whose combustible and fueled entrails thence conceiving fire, sublimed with mineral fury, aid the winds and leave a singed bottom all involved with stench and smoke. So he's describing volcanoes. Um, just that's what a subterranean wind is. They didn't know where volcanoes came from, but boy, did they know they existed. Um, so he's saying that's what hell is like. It's like being inside a volcano um, with all the wind and gas and everything else. Um, Such resting found the soul of unblessed feet. Him followed his next mate, both glorying to escape the Stygian flood as gods and by their own recovered strength not by the sufferance of supernal power. So the idea is, although it's not absolutely said, the impression that Milton or that Milton's narrator seeks to leave here is that they are wrong to glory at their own escape, that it was the sufferance of supernal power that allowed them to um, break free of the lake on which they were chained and get to dry land, that God let them do this. But they take credit for it themselves. They think God tried to chain us on the lake, but failed. And then this great speech. Is this the region, this the soil, the climb, said then the lost archangel. This the seat that we must change for heaven. This mournful gloom for that celestial light. So is that how things have to be? This mournful gloom for that celestial light. Is this what the trade-off is? Notice that Milton calls him an archangel. He doesn't call him, said then, the devising devil or the sneaky devil, but the lost archangel. Who wouldn't want to be thought of as a lost archangel? Um, Milton will use a similar term as we'll see a little bit later. This mournful gloom for that celestial light, and then the great three-word phrase, be it so. Be it so, since he who now is sovereign can dispose and bid what shall be right. So might makes right. God can decide what shall be right, says Satan. Well, if that's so, then furthest from him is best. The farther away from God, the better, because he is a tyrant. Furthest from him is best, whom reason hath equaled, force hath made supreme above his equals. So as reasoning beings, we have equaled him, but he's made supreme not by reason but by force. 
Farewell, happy fields, where joy forever dwells. Hail, horrors. Hail, infernal world. And thou, profoundest hell, receive thy new possessor, one who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. Again, this is Satan at his most sublime, a mind not to be changed by space or by place or time, because the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. What matters is in the mind. What matter where, if I be still the same and what I should be, all but less than he whom thunder hath made greater here, at least, we shall be free. The Almighty hath not built here for his envy, will not drive us hence. So hell is a place of freedom, and that matters. He prefers freedom in hell to comfort and pleasure in heaven. Here we may reign secure, and in my choice to reign is worth ambition, though in hell, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. So that's Satan declaring his absolute preference for his situation in hell because of the freedom that it offers to what his situation was in heaven. So the, the first thing that, then that's worth noticing is that God and Satan agree on certain things. And among the things that they agree on, that they would both subscribe to, is the fundamental, absolute, peerless importance of freedom. They both claim to be on the side of freedom. Both God and Satan claim to be on the side of freedom. So there are various ways now to think about, well, what does that mean? If they're both on the side, if they both claim to be on the side of freedom, you know, the peace-loving peoples of North Korea claim, their government claims that they're on the side of peace. Are they? Yeah. Well, this might be a slightly controversial way of putting it, but wouldn't you argue that perhaps they are sort of saying, they, I mean, Milton, is sort of saying that God is pro-life and Satan is pro-choice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the question then is, um, well, the question is, can you get that, can you use a single vocabulary for that, for being both um, pro-life and pro-choice? Um, and you can't quite, because they're, they're both um, tendentious labels. Um, but you could say pro-family, how's that? Right. Um, that is those bumper stickers, the, the typical Cambridge liberal bumper stickers, pro-child, pro-choice, pro-family. Mm -hmm. um, and so everyone agrees, I mean not everyone, but the, 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 the majority of, of um, politicians on both sides agree that they're pro-family. And the question is which is the better way to be pro-family, to be pro-life um, or to be pro-choice. Um, here, they both claim that freedom is an absolute value. Um, 
not in the mathematical sense. But maybe, actually, maybe in the mathematical sense um, that it is an absolute value. Um, and what goes between the two uprights of the absolute value sign um, will have different signs for Satan and for God. Um, but nevertheless, for both of them, freedom is an absolute value. Um, so that's, yeah. Does this have to do with, in the New Testament somewhere, I can't remember, Jesus says it's better to be a tenant or something in the house of the Lord than to be a master in the tents of sin. Yeah. And I see that as a direct... Um, inversion. Inversion of yeah. what Satan is saying here. Well, or it's nice that you see it that way. In fact, it would be Satan is giving an exact... No, no, it, it's a credit to Milton that you see it that way. Um, I had a point. <laughs> well, that they that they do that they that there is a there, there's a very locatable disagreement. That is that you can say, well, no, actually, that it, does that really count as freedom if it's better to be a servant in the tents of the Lord? How is that free, right? Um, and of course, God would say, but that's the only freedom there is, um, is is being a servant in the in the tents of the Lord. I'd rather be a plowman. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That's really good. In Book Eleven of the Odyssey, um, the, what what um, Odysseus goes down as Milton here in Paradise Lost. It's part of um, the epic tradition. What's called the descent into the underworld. Um, this seems to actually to be a long folkloric tradition, not only epic. Um, but a lot of what's in epic is folklore. Um, so the hero descends to the underworld, descends to hell. Um, and in the Odyssey, it's Odysseus descends to hell where he meets all the lost adventurers, his peers, um, all of whom have died, um, Odysseus alone having survived. And among those whom he meets is Achilles. And he says, what's it like? And Achilles says, well, I died for glory. Um, but let me tell you, I would rather be the meanest plowman, slaved to a master and plowing a field and alive, than to be the most glorious of figures down here in Hades, um, in the realms of death. Um, <clears throat> one of the ways, as I say, that Milton um, takes that epic motif, the descent to the underworld, is he makes that he makes that something the narrator does. Um, his own narrator is the one who spends two books in hell before being taught to reascend as Aeneas, who also, um, uh, the famous line in the Aeneid um, about the descent into the underworld is Aeneas is told that he has to talk to Tiresias, who's dead, um, to figure out how to get to Italy. And so he says to the Chameleon Sibyl, um, how do I get to the underworld? And she says, nothing easier. The gates to the underworld are everywhere, open at every moment. There's no problem whatever to go to the underworld. The problem is getting back. <laughs> um, and the great line is, um, hic labor, hic opus est. That's labor. That's work. That's a work to get back. So Aeneas is also taught to reascend to our world from the underworld. Um, so that is, um, it's easy 
to be in the underworld, and easy if you're even if you're a king um, to prefer the underworld. Um, Satan seems to be able to get back, just as the narrator does get back to this world in the course of Paradise Lost. Um, but again, you're right; it's a direct reversal. What Satan is saying is better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Um, go forward a little bit to um, around line five. Um, let's let's start at uh, five sixty six. Um, So all of the rebel angels have now recovered enough to um, form into their ranks and listen to what he has to say. And it, this is still book one, line 566. He through the, halfway through the line, he, 567, he through the armored files darts his experienced eye and soon traverse the whole battalion views, their order due, their visages and stature as of gods, their number last he sums. So he's making sure that they're all there, like a Roman or um, a parliamentary general. And now his heart distends with pride. So that sounds bad. And hardening in his strength glories. So his heart is hardening like Pharaoh's, distending, that is swelling with pride and hardening in his strength, his heart glories. For never since created man met such embodied force. So never again was such an army gathered together. As named with these could merit more than that small infantry warred on by Crane. So the greatest human army looks like an army of pygmies when they had a mythological battle with birds. Though all the giant brood of Phlegro with their heroic race were joined that fought at Thebes and Ilium on each side mixed with auxil auxiliar gods and what resounds in fable romance of Uther's son, who's Uther's son? Yeah, Arthur, right. Um, here he's talking about the fairy queen in particular. Begirt with British and Armoric knights, and all who since baptized her infidel, jousted in Aspremont or Montalbam, Damasco or Morocco or Trebizond, or whom Bizerta sent from Africa's shore when Charlemagne with all his peerage fell by Fontarabia. So if you took all the great mythological and legendary armies and battles from all the great works, from the Iliad to the Aeneid to the Song of Roland to the Fairy Queen to, um, to Orlando Furioso, which is, also tells the story of Roland, um, to Tasso, to all the great epic writers, took all the armies from all the great epic writers and put them all together that army would look like the crane look like the pygmies against the cranes compared to the army of rebel angels thus far these beyond compare of mortal prowess yet observed their dread
commander. So this tremendous army are just standing there looking at their dread commander. He, above the rest, in shape and gesture proudly eminent, stood like a tower. His form had yet not lost all her original brightness, nor appeared less than archangel ruined and the excess of glory obscured. So now the lost archangel has become archangel ruined. That's what he looked like. No less than archangel ruined and the excess of glory obscured. Then we get what's called an epic simile, which is a long analogy to a situation. There are a lot of them in Paradise Lost. Um, they're very famous in Homer. Um, Homer was certainly where we know them from. And they're astonishing, um, Homeric simile. And Milton um, does a really good job, in general, of imitating Homeric simile. Um, do you remember any of them? From There's um, what Satan looked like um, when he's lying in the burning lake. And basically, to cut to the chase, he's, um, he lies there many a rood long like Leviathan. That is like the great whale, Leviathan. Um, that's the scene in Paradise Lost that most haunted Melville um, and is at least a source for Moby Dick. Um, but then Milton describes, um, it, it's just worth it just to get a sense of um, epic simile. Um, go, keep your finger here because we're going to go back to this. Um, but um, hang on. Um, One, two hundred. Yeah, good. Thank you. Um, yeah, start at line 192. Satan's already said he doesn't repent what's happened to them, um, even, even chained to the burning lake. Thus Satan, talking to his nearest mate, with head uplift above the wave and eyes that sparkling blazed, extended long and large, lay floating many a rood, in bulk as huge as whom the fable's name of monstrous size, Titanian or earthborn that warred on Jove, Briaris or Typhon, whom the den by ancient Tarsus held, or so these are all figures from Greek and Roman mythology, that is the Titans fighting back against um, the Olympian gods. Um, or that sea beast, Leviathan, which God of all his works created hugest that swim the ocean stream. Him, and then out of nowhere, we get this little account of Leviathan. Him, haply slumbering on the Norway foam, the pilot of some small night-foundered skiff. Do you guys have night-foundered or nigh-foundered? Night, good. Um, there's some debate, but I'm pretty sure it's night. Um, beautiful image, foundered by night. 
Um, the so him happily slumbling, slumbering on the Norway foam, the pilot of some small night-foundered skiff, deeming some island, oft as seamen tell, with fixed anchor in his scaly rind, moors by his side under the lee, while night invests the sea, and wished morn delays. So you get this beautiful image of a pilot in a small boat, in presumably in a storm, at least um, worrying about what will happen in the night, taking shelter by what he thinks is an island, and anchoring in what actually turns out to be Leviathan scales. Um, and it's just a beautiful image. There, why? Not <coughs> to advance in any sense the plot. We don't even see what's going to happen to that poor pilot. If anything will, we don't know whether he'll escape or not. We're not even supposed to be knowing about this. We're not supposed to think, oh, yeah, that poor pilot, the, the um, whale's going to kill him the next day. The whale would have killed him the night before if that was obvious. But here's this description, and then we get the so that tells us this has been a simile. So stretched out huge in length, the arch fiend lay chained on the burning lake, and then these crucial lines, nor ever thence had risen or heaved his head, but that the will and high permission of all ruling heaven left him at large to his own dark designs. Why? that with reiterated crimes he might heap on himself damnation while he sought evil to others, and enraged might see how all his malice served but to bring forth infinite goodness, etc. So he'd still be there like Leviathan in the lake, except that the will and high permission of all ruling heaven let him go. Why? So that he could dig a deeper hole for himself and see how badly he was messing up. So now, here he is again in this other epic simile. Um, Nor did he appear less than Archangel Ruined, line 593, and the excess of glory obscured, as when the sun, new risen, looks through the horizontal, misty air, shorn of his beams. So Satan looked like sunrise. Not the sun at noon, not the sun blazing down with all its brightness, but the sun at sunrise. A little bit of an odd thing to compare him to. The point is that he's shorn of his heavenly brilliance, shorn of his beams, but still sunrise. No oh. Sorry? He's no, longer he's no longer Lucifer. He's the sun itself. Good. Um, or the way the sun looks from behind the moon, when the sun from behind the moon, in dim eclipse, disastrous twilight sheds on half the nations, and with fear of change perplexes monarchs. Now, one thing to notice here, um, two things to notice. First of all, that there are two similes that the narrator offers us for Satan. One is quite beautiful, the sun at sunrise, the sun we can look at rather 
then have to turn our eyes away from. The other is the sun in a total eclipse. That is, um, the sun darkened by the moon, and eclipses are always regarded as evil portents. Astrologically, um, eclipses are always bad. Um, they're signs of evil things occurring. Um, two images, as though the narrator, and we have to talk about the narrator as a separate character from Milton in Paradise Lost. Strongly have to talk about him as a separate character. One thing that happens in Paradise Lost is the narrator learns an enormous amount from the story that he's telling. So the narrator wants to describe Satan as evil, but he keeps failing to nail it down. Satan keeps resisting the propaganda the narrator wants to give about him. And it's really worth seeing that, that dynamism here. You can really see it in the passage we're about to look at. Um, but I also just want to point out, because we talked about this a little bit on Monday, um, the typical Miltonic accuracy of half the nations um, in dim eclipse disastrous twilight sheds on half the nations. That is, it's not a total eclipse over, certainly it's not over the whole world, since half the world is faced the other way. Um, but also total eclipses Milton knew. Um, there's a band of darkness that covers the Earth, but the whole Earth is never eclipsed. Um, and he's at, his astronomy is accurate. Um, part of the encyclopedia quality of Paradise Lost is the accuracy um, of the knowledge of its writer. So here, and do people know what disastrous means, what the word disaster means, literally? Yeah, it, it, it's, the, it's the negation of a star. Aster means star. So a disaster means um, that the stars that should be protecting you or the astrology that should guarantee you some fate or another has been ruined. So disastrous twilight means not the twilight that we see um, when the normal stars are rising, but the disastrous twilight of an eclipse means that we don't get our familiar sky in an eclipse, which of course we don't. If you can see the stars in a total eclipse, the stars you're seeing are stars that you would never see at that time because they're the stars that the sun, where the sun is, the fixed stars behind the sun, not the fixed stars on the other side of the Earth, which is the stars that, you all understand this? The stars we always see. Um, so, darkened so, darkened so, like the sun in eclipse, and then we get the first of many what are called adversives in the next few lines. An adversive is a word which changes the direction of a sentence. Um, I was late, but my professor was later, so it was okay. That is, I was late is the sentence is going one way towards, well, let's say disaster, but my professor was later, so it was okay, and that changes the direction that things seem to be going in. Adversives are words like but, yet, however, still, 
words like that, words which um, change um, the evaluation of the facts that the sentence is giving you. Um, they tell you if you're evaluating this one way, you know, in logic, but means and. Do people know that? If you ever take a logic course and someone says, so what's the logical notation for but? The answer is and. Um, but is how we evaluate a clause that follows it. But the meaning of the clause, if you say um, something like, um, um, he, you know, let's say we're talking about Rajan Rondo, um, he's short but um, incredibly athletic. Um, the takeaway for that is there are two true sentences there. He's short and he's incredibly athletic. And the but is just a kind of rhetorical flourish saying, implying you might think that that would make him a bad basketball player, but it doesn't. But that's only, an, that's, that's only um, a suggestion. The actual logical facts are short, he is short, he is incredibly athletic. And he is short and he is incredibly athletic gives you logically the equivalent statements. Um, conjunction of statements. That's why but is a conjunction just as and is. Do you know, guys know about um, conjunction, junction? What's my function? Yeah. Um, so that's why but or for, those are all conjunctions. Um, but these are adversatives, words like but, still, um, yet, and so on. So notice how many there are. Dark and so, yet shown above them all the archangel. But his face, there's that but, but his face, deep scars of thunder had entrenched and care sat on his faded cheek. So he's dark, but he shines, but his face, <coughs> deep scars of thunder had entrenched and care sat on his faded cheek. But under brows of dauntless courage and considerate prize, weighed pride, waiting revenge, cruel his eye, all of that is what the narrator wants to say, but then, but, cast signs of remorse and passion to behold the fellows of his crime. The followers, rather. So whose rather is that? All of what we can say is dark and so yet shown. It's almost as though the narrator wants to say, look, he was darkened and full of care. His cheeks were faded. Um, his, he, he was um, um, uh, scarred with thunder um, and so on. So why would you take this person at all seriously? But every time he tries to describe Satan and use all these negative descriptions, we get Satan resisting them with yet shown above them all the archangel, but under brows of dauntless courage and considerate prize. Cruel as I, says the narrator, but cast signs of remorse and passion to behold the fellows of his crime. The followers, rather. Now, rather is also an adversative. It's, I said it one way, but it would be better to say it another way. But just, um, again, this is by way of, of suggestion in the poem, not by way of um, asking a literal question. But whose rather is that? What do I mean by that? Yeah. Well, I, I would assume that it would be 
the narrator correcting himself. He says uh, they were his fellows, his followers, rather. Yeah. Like he, at first, he puts the other arch fiends on the same level as Satan, and then he has to sort of demote them. Okay. Um, by demoting them, does that make them better or worse, or the same? You mean morally? Yeah. It depends on your perspective. Yeah. Okay. Um, what do you think, morally? I think that it's the narrator's way of redeeming them slightly. Like okay, redeeming them slightly. Yeah. Good. They did sin, but... But he did it. They were following him. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Which is the same thing that happens to, to man, which is God says, like, I, I, I will give Adam every opportunity in the world to do the right thing, but should he do the wrong thing, it will be because Satan convinced him to, not because he is as bad as Satan, and therefore I will give him a chance at redemption. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Yeah, Tony. I was just going to say it's the, the just following martyrs conflict, which is really just morally ambiguous. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was just following orders. Um, I would not have killed all the Jews if I were in charge of the Reich, but I had to follow orders. Um, so, clearly, no one is worse than Hitler, right? Um, the question is, if you say, you know, well, here is, here is um, Goering, uh, just as bad as Hitler, or rather his follower, um, are you in any way, um, is the distinction that you're making in any way one which lessens Goering's um, moral turpitude, moral horror? Yeah. I mean, in, in one way, it's redemptive in that it removes some of the blame, but on the other hand, it is equally, it's more condemning because, like, at least Satan, for example, I don't want to touch the Hitler thing right now. Um, <coughs> oh, that's always it's never I mean, controversial. It's fun. I mean, you know, at least Satan, he made an active choice. He made a moral decision based upon his, his own mental faculties, whereas everyone else is like, okay, that sounds cool, and they followed him. Okay, yeah. Yeah, at least. Um, I think your point earlier about what did he do actually is relevant here, because yeah. I'm not sure whether the narrator already has read ahead and knows about yeah. Like, yeah. the whole thing and what he actually did, because I see... Like, it's getting upset about the sun and then deciding to go to war with God. I see this as very different from, like, Hitler and the Holocaust. Yeah. So I could see them as more sympathetic. Okay. Yeah. I would, I would say that the, the narrator sees them as sympathetic but doesn't want to. It's kind of like the road to hell is paved in good intentions. Uh -huh. Like, it feels like the narrator knows that Satan is bad. So he's bad. But when he's looking at him and, and like, looking at his situation and what he did, why... Um, or at least as much as he knows why, uh -huh. um, he can't completely blame him. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, do people know if I use the phrase free and direct style? Free, it's three words, not four. Free, indirect style. Um, what would that mean? Um, it's, Jane Austen does it a lot, especially in Emma. Uh, it's when you right into the narrative, your narrator making assumptions about the text that are, in fact, uh, either incorrect or, or biased. Or, well, they're, they're, they're the characters. So what, right. what free and direct style, basically there's something called indirect quotation. Um, you, know, you all know what that is. 
Milton says that he um, wants to write a poem um, justifying the ways of God to man. Um, so that's basically, that's called whenever you introduce what someone said with the word that rather than with a quotation mark, uh, Milton says, and I quote, I intend to justify the ways of God to man, unquote. Um, indirect quotation is when you summarize following a that or paraphrase following a that um, what indirect quotation would purport to be a verbatim um, reproduction of what a person said. So most of our quotation is indirect. She said that she would meet me at noon. Um, it's very rare that in real life you would be talking to someone and you would say, well, let's go over to Usedan now because she said, quote, I shall meet you there at noon, unquote. <laughs> That's just not the way we speak. Um, so the only time you would give direct quotation is you get to Usedan at noon and your friend says, now, are you, you said she was going to meet you here. I, I'm not sure that that's what she was saying. I think you probably misunderstood her. And then you say, no, she said, quote, I will meet you there at noon, unquote. Um, so it's only when you really, really need to do direct quotation that you will. So that's just standard. Um, that's how we speak, um, is when we talk about what other people have said, which we do all the time. Um, we do it through indirect quotation most of the time. Um, indirect style is taking that sort of way of talking about someone else and giving it to a third-person narrator. So a third-person narrator will give you what people are thinking and what they're doing um, almost as though there's a that before every sentence. So um, what you could say something like is, um, he thought that he would um, take a nap now. Um, he thought that after a nap he would get up and fix himself some breakfast. He thought that after breakfast there would be plenty of time to study for the uh, English 63A exam. Um, he was wrong. Um, so that, again, is a standard but boring way that you could describe what someone is doing. So what happens, and this is also very natural in narrative, is that people leave out the he thought that's. And then you can recognize this um, as something very familiar from narrative. That is, um, he was tired. He'd go to sleep now. There'd be plenty of time to study the next morning. He'd get up, take a shower, have a good breakfast, study for a couple of hours, and then ace the exam. Now, if that's really an omniscient narrator telling you that, you could take it to the bank, right? But of course you wouldn't. If the omniscient narrator is telling you that, what do you know is not going to happen? He's going to ace the exam. Yeah. It's, all this stuff is what he's thinking. Um, and even though we don't have the he thought that, um, that's just, you know, you could say something like, um, he'd get up in the morning, um, study hard, and do well. The next morning, a tornado came and killed him. You wouldn't say, wait a second, this work is contradicting itself. You would recognize that his thoughts, that he thought that he'd get up in the morning, study hard, and ace the exam. But that's not, in fact, what happened. So that's called free 
indirect style. It's like indirect quotation or indirect discourse. Um, it's giving you what's going on in someone's head from a perspective outside of them, but that is only um, a kind of grammatical perspective outside of them. Um, but what we're getting is not the truth, that is, that he would get up in the next, the next morning and do these things. What we're getting is what he was anticipating he would do the next morning. Does this make sense to people? I mean, it's, it's, you, you just see it all the time, especially um, in post-Jane Austen, in Jane Austen and post-Jane Austen novels. Um, you know, to, to be mistress of Manderley, that would be something. Jane Austen doesn't think that, but Elizabeth Bennet thinks it. Um, but Jane Austen writes it in those sentences, but that's not because she's thinking, boy, I really hope this happens to Elizabeth because then I'd have a great ending for her. Um, she's an ironess. That's not what she's thinking. Um, but she's giving us the thoughts in the Snoopy and the Red Baron kind of way. Um, in the third person, but the, it's a first person perspective given in third person language, which gives you a little bit of room for irony. Um, anyhow, this is a standard way of getting into someone's perspective. You know, if you read um, biographies, you'll see this all the time. Um, he would bring um, he would bring along the southern sen senators um, who trusted him because of um, all that he'd done for the New Deal under Roosevelt. Um, he knew that he'd be able to bring them along to vote for civil rights. Um, he, after that, he could bring them along um, to support his policy of escalating the Vietnam War despite the fact that he had defeated Goldwater by calling Goldwater the escalator. So if you say something like, after that, he could, well, no, he couldn't, he didn't, he failed. But that would tell you that's what LBJ was thinking. After he'd done that, he could do this. Um, after the individual mandate was passed, um, he could make sure that a single-payer system was put into place um, when he was reelected. Um, so that might be the unfortunate biographical account of Obama's presidency that will be written in five years. Um, the Supreme Court would certainly not overturn it. Um, well, that's what he thought. So this is just very familiar narrative, na uh, familiar narrative technique. Um, it's something to notice because at this point, I think something like that is going on in Satan. That is, so cruel as I, but cast signs of remorse and passion to behold the fellows of his crime. So why does he feel remorse and passion? Because he's looking at these millions of spirits and he's feeling remorse and passion to see the fellows of his crime. So he's the one who's thinking as he looks at them, lo, the fellows of my crime. And then we get this correction, the followers rather. And I think you should see that correction as in Satan. That is, he looks at them and what he thinks is, all these people who fell with me, my fellows, my equals, my peers. And then he thinks, no, I have to actually acknowledge that it was my fault. Not the fellows of my crime, the followers. I led them to this. So I think you should see the rather here as 
if not simply Satan's, then shared between Satan and the narrator. That is, they both see that it's Satan is the person who's really responsible. And that's why Satan is feeling remorse and passion. To behold the fellow, fellows of his crime, the followers, rather, far other ones beheld in bliss, condemned forever now to have their lot in pain. Millions of spirits for his fault, immersed of heaven, and from eternal splendors flung for his revolt. That's what he's seeing. So if you ask what's he seeing, you know, again, to use the standard philosophical example, we know that the evening star and the morning star are both the same thing. The evening star is the morning star. Um, they're both the planet Venus. Um, but before that was known, you could believe that the evening star um, was closer to the sun than Earth is, and not believe that the morning star was closer to the sun than the Earth is. Um, and even though that's logically inconsistent, they're the same star. So you'd be both believing and disbelieving the same thing. It totally makes sense if you don't know that the evening star is the morning star. So I believe something about the evening star. I believe it's opposite about the morning star. What makes that not logically inconsistent is that, that I don't know the two things are the same. Um, so that idea that you can believe two inconsistent things when you don't know that they're the same thing um, means that when you are talking about a judgment that a character is making, in this case, millions of spirits for his fault immersed of heaven and from eternal splendors flung, flung for his revolt, that's not just Milton saying, look at those spirits, I feel sorry for them, it's all Satan's fault. It's Satan who is seeing them that way. He sees them a certain way. And what he's seeing are millions of spirits for his fault immersed of heaven and from eternal splendor stone for his revolt. And then another adversative, yet faithful how they stood. So despite all this, they are faithful. What a word to use for fallen angels. Yet faithful how they stood. Their glory withered. So they've lost all that external stuff, all that place and time and external experience. Their glory is withered. Their, he looks like an archangel ruined. Yet in the midst of all that, they, they remain faithful. So he looks at them. We get another simile. As when heaven's fire hath scathed the forest oaks or mountain pines with singed top, their stately growth, though bare, stands on the blasted heath, he now prepared to speak. Whereat their doubled ranks they bend from wing to wing and half enclose him round with all his peers. Attention held them mute. Thrice he essayed. And thrice, in spite of scorn, tears 
such as angels weep, burst forth. At last, words interwove with sighs found out their ways. So that's just remarkable to have Satan attempting to rally and address those who he knows he's brought to this pass. And he tries to speak to them and to build up their morale. And instead, he weeps for them. Not tears such as devils weep, but tears such as angels weep. So I think if you're simply going to be dismissive of Satan the way C.S. Lewis is, and boy, is he dismissive, um, he really doesn't want you pausing over these lines. Um, you're going to do him a very great injustice. And the question of justice, this is something we'll pick up on on Monday. Um, we should at some point um, um, decide for a time for our makeup class, um, which is optional. Um, but uh, we'll talk about this on Monday. But um, we basically have to finish Paradise Lost next week um, for your little hour test the um, week after. Um, if you're thinking about justice in Paradise Lost, the relation of justice to freedom, um, which is the very first thing that Milton says he wants to do is justify, that is show the justice of, that's what the word justify means. Um, justify the ways of God to man. Um, then you really do have to do justice to, to Satan. And you have to see what justice demands and what justice really is. Um, all right, so really, we'll, you'll be expected to have Paradise Lost finished by a week from today. Um, so really, really, really read. Um, and at least read through book nine for Monday. Book nine is the fall of Adam and Eve, just so you know. So at least through book nine for, um, for Monday. Oh, papers. Um, the paper.